there used to be this respect for time, for creativity, for original thinking that we just don't even have anymore. The ones who come up with the best ideas are the ones who still have the luxury of time. Hey, what's up, people? It's Brandon Ferris, and you're listening to A Quick Read, an advertising podcast that talks book smarts and street smarts with people who have been there, done that. Today's guest is creative and entrepreneur Jamie Paleo. She's worked with luxury brands from beauty to fashion, and she's creating one of her own. We dive into deluxe and learn the difference between craft and copies. You know what to do. Tune in and turn up. What's up, Jamie? How are you doing? Are you out west? Are you in New York? I know you kind of dance between. Are you in Europe? Where are you these days? I'm in Los Angeles currently. I've been here quarantining uh, basically since March 12th. That was really my last work flight. Yeah. Well, I know that's where I met you. And at the time you were, I think you were living on a farm. Is that is that still the case? Are you still living the organic lifestyle? I am still slightly living the organic lifestyle. My animals are currently being boarded um, at a nearby farm. We've moved. We're working on a new project and hoping to reintegrate them into the homestead in the next few months. Wow. So so we'll get back to that. But I, I met you uh, when I had a project that was I was shooting out in L.A. for a fashion brand. Um, and uh, I was so excited to get to meet you. And I think you saved the day for me and, and made me feel like everything was going to be all right. So I really appreciate it. And I'm so happy that you're able to join the show. Um, now, I was really excited and surprised with the book that you selected. You told me about this book called Deluxe by Dana Thomas, which really tells the story of the luxury fashion industry. Why did you choose that book? Well, my I started my career in fashion and luxury um, and also studied it in college. And I was noticing that I didn't really feel like the industry was living up to the authenticity, the history, and the values of what I had studied and its past. So when the book came out um, and I read it, it really helped me sort of make a concrete shift in my thinking about my career and how I wanted to contribute to the legacy of working in this industry sector. Yeah. Well, and this book really dives in, and I was just it was not what I expected. I thought that maybe somehow it was connected, you know, to this story of like marketing these big brands, but really it's this beautiful tale of, of craft and how it, it hits this moment in time where all things aren't well and, uh, and some, some things happen in the industry that become frustrating. And it was really interesting. And then I was so intrigued of how there were so many learning points along the way. So before we dig into that, let's talk a little bit about your background. You mentioned you studied this type of thing and you were, you know, early on moving into the space of of luxury goods and fashion and beauty. What do you mean by that? What kind of work have you been doing that, that kind of started back then that leads us to now? Well, I grew up in the good old Midwest in the 90s. And like many people at that time, probably lived voyeuristically through fashion magazines. Um, 
and I maybe shows or, or things that kind of showed off this kind of more glamorous life that was being lived in New York and Los Angeles and overseas abroad. And um, I was attracted to the creativity in the magazine pages. So when I decided what I wanted to study, I wanted to really get into to design, to fashion, um, but not as a designer, more as someone who supported the industry. So I spent a few years in my home state going to university, um, studying in sort of the textile and apparel curriculum, which was more slated towards, you know, working for a Gap or a department store traditionally here in the States, and then spent one year abroad um, at the London College of Fashion, which was really the experience that helped me truly understand the fashion industry and where I was hoping to go with it. Um, that what was happening in the late 90s uh, out of London in particular with designers like Hussein Shalayan, Alexander McQueen, John Galliano really starting to take over the couture houses and doing these really incredible uh, fashion shows coming out of Central St. Martin's, which was the sister school to the school I went to in London. Um, it was just a really exciting time to be learning about fashion and engaging in that kind of creative creativity that I didn't really have in my curriculum back home stateside. Yeah. The other one thing I want to chime in there on, this was also when we talked 90s in fashion, I mean, we're talking about like 90s hip hop as well. I mean, a lot of these fashion brands were being showcased from these, in these music videos and those sort of things. So was was that part of that culture as well? Were you absorbing some of what was happening there? I think the culture that I was absorbing was still a little bit more elitist in a way, if you will. I think predominantly you had influences from Sex in the City um, in terms of women's fashion coming out of New York and Sarah Jessica Parker and those girls kind of setting that tone. Um, and you had definitely some streetwear influences coming through the runways. One thing that comes to mind is like Alexander McQueen's Bumster collection, which was kind of a very controversial mm -hmm. moment where like literally he sent women down the runway with low pants that kind of had the bum crack, if you will, showing out, which was a little <laughs> bit shocking. Yeah. So they're, they're, they were starting to kind of incorporate um, those nodes, but I think for the most part, hip-hop and that kind of culture was still taking from those kind of more elitist worlds and trying to incorporate that bling into their to their world a little bit more. I think right now streetwear and street culture is very dominant, but at that point it it hadn't really been yet. So you were really soaking in that couture culture of this like high-end world where like, you know, custom fittings and only a very small percentage of people were experiencing some of that sort of thing. Well, I think it was already being democratized because you were seeing it rolled out in Hollywood culture. Um, and the magazines already had shifted pretty much in the 1970s to start being a little bit more um, still aspirational, but a little bit more attainable. Um, Anna Winter at Vogue was very famous at that time in the late 80s already for mixing a very high-end um, couture kind of sweater piece with a pair of jeans. And that was really the start of that kind of high-low and a little bit more aspirational shift in magazine and the fashion culture from just being for a very 
uh, super wealthy group of people. Yeah. So, so they're soaking it in, observing it. How do you then immerse yourself? How do you all of a sudden step further in? Well, the thing that was really important to me was really looking at it through a historical lens and how different um, factors in our daily lives, no matter what part of society we came from, influenced dress. And that's what I really loved. So I really loved spending a lot of times and time in the in the museums, like Victorian Albert Museum, kind of looking at those costume collections and understanding what kind of things were coming out of social movements and also cultures that were being adopted in, you know, in large and mass to become trends that we were following. Um, and that was what was really, really interesting to me. And then I translated that that more academic side to, um, you know, the business of fashion to my first job, which was working uh, as a PR assistant in Los Angeles, helping to put couture gowns on celebrities for events like the Oscars um, and other red carpet events. So there was that like level of craftsmanship and uniqueness to what was happening, but that was really the only platform or forum anymore for this type of more handmade, really unique design where everything else was going super ready to wear and um, a little bit more expected and, and copying, if you will. There wasn't like a true inspiration point. So how long were you in that space? How long was that, you know, kind of the world you were a part of? And then what was that next translation in your career to, you know, how did you learn from that and shape it into your next step? I lasted about a year, a little bit more <laughs> in, the, in the PR assistant world because um, a couple of things came to mind. Um, I, I really didn't find putting outfits on celebrities to be very fulfilling. I felt like you were really at the end of uh, something that the process itself of the creation and the inspiration was way more interesting than whoever the person was that was going to don it on the red carpet for a couple hours. And it was disappointing to me, I think, culturally, that so much emphasis is put on that final embarkation of that design versus the whole process, which is way more fascinating. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely an interesting point that you, you pull out there. Um, and so... So at what point, you know, if you're there and you're like, oh, this isn't really fulfilling, I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, how do you parlay a skill set and a knowledge in a very specific field into something that you could turn into, you know, more of a career as you as you were looking forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was involved in a, a several lucky accidents, if you will. Um, you know, so much in that industry is based on people that you meet and whatnot. And my next step into it was still in kind of the PR realm, but working with a, um, a two people who were take, doing PR and marketing and more of a consulting type of role and helping young designers, LA-based designers, actually build their businesses and build their collections. So I went from strictly just helping, again, put clothing on celebrities for this kind of end wow factor to learning more about the process and being involved in everything from fabric sourcing to um, working uh, alongside them with pattern makers to seeing those collections journey to trade shows and then ultimately 
marketing exercises like fashion shows and photo shoots, et cetera. So I got, I spent the next two and a half, three years really understanding the industry and was very fortunate at a young age to have incredible experience working in ateliers in Italy and France and Switzerland, and also a long stint in Istanbul as well. So that was a really incredible experience where I really learned a lot more about how things were made. And then I left that to really join the media side, which was kind of the only unchecked box in terms of like that journey to me um, and understanding that the inception to the end point of the fashion cycle. So I left that part of my career and joined Vogue magazine as an assistant, actually on the advertising and creative services side. Um, after about five, having a career for about five years, I went back to being assistants just so that I could learn the media part of that. And that was 2005. So um, a very fortunate time to be there um, and really kind of be in the last few years of the kind of supremacy, if you will, of that magazine (laughs) pre-recession, pre-every, you know, pre-digital even, quite frankly, and really kind of see the power of print in that way. Wow. So, so, so you took all that knowledge and, and your, the historic knowledge, the expertise, you've seen the whole sort of industry, and now you're helping to sort of bring it forward in this magazine. And so I, I get, along that way, that did that influence, um, you know, as you start to become a maker and a creative and a producer who's like bringing this stuff to life, I guess, what were those what were those skill sets that, how are they, you know, coming to life? And, and I guess, is this sort of the journey that brought you into you know, sort of a creative and a producer and sort of creative director or like, I guess, how did that fully get expressed at, um, there in the magazine? And then how did that continue to transfer on? Cause obviously, you know, when I reached out to you, you, you know, you were, you were producing all sorts of stuff. And, um, and, and so I guess what I'm looking for is that connection from fashion to this, this other world. Totally. Production and bringing these things to life. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, again, I spent the first four years of my career kind of as an apprentice on the job, learning every aspect of the industry. Going into the media part was totally new for me. As an assistant, in particular on the advertising side, um, we were really more interfacing with the brands that were advertising in the magazine. However, we were in a really interesting time where the uh, that side of the magazine wielded a lot of power because of the amount of money coming through advertising. And we were able to be very innovative in terms of the type of programs that we were able to offer those brands to really solicit the dollars from them to, to grow the pages of the magazine, so to speak. And so you saw this shift in, especially because um, the onboarding of digital platforms, websites, which hadn't even really been built out for many brands at that point in 2005. Our publisher, um, Tom Florio, who is such an amazing man, and I really think he had such an incredible vision, started to build out both digital internet platforms for Vogue, as well as television programming and eventually um, online video programming that was being advertiser supported, but bared the Vogue name, and also the, uh, the ethos 
of the magazine as well. And so I think because I had all this experience coming into an assistant position, which I really took a step back to do and learn, and that was really humbling. But because I had all of this knowledge and had some experience, um, I was just in a very lucky, fortunate place to basically be handed the reins to the video um, production portion of the magazine at an early time, um, which was really incredible. Uh, I can't explain it, but yeah, essentially at that time, you know, (laughs) as people like me who are growing out of being an assistant could take on the digital reins or the video production reins of a big magazine like that and worked with such an incredible team that I learned from both people internally and external partners to learn the craft and also took classes at NYU, um, extension courses in production specifically so that I could really apply those to this new job that I had. And that is really what allowed me to have this career as a producer in both photo and video. It's all thanks to Vogue. Wow. Yeah, no, and, and that was, you know, that back then, I mean, you were talking, you were dealing with like big budgets and there was like, you know, that was before the democratization of technology and software. I mean, there, those were days when edit suites were, you know, being booked, you know, for a pretty penny. So, um, you know, that, that I assume that was uh, an interesting time. Um, so that's really, that's really awesome. So we go from production, obviously I met you, you know, after that time and it was, I think it was like 2015, we worked on a, our first project for uh, John Frieda, which was a hair care sort of piece. And um, I remember calling you and I was like, I need you. <laughs> I was like kind of freaking out because I was sort of like new in the game and I needed this thing to be amazing. And I was like, I need like, I need amazing models. I need awesome locations. And I loved it because you like you had that Midwestern sensibility and you were just like, Brandon, it's going to be okay. I got you. And that was it. And, and, and from that day on, you've, you've been my LA producer and it was an amazing experience. And you got, you know, wonderful Wilhelmina models and you had these beautiful locations. And, um, and then since from there, we, we did a, pr- a project not too long ago. What was a whirlwind where we we filmed in Joshua Tree and Malibu, and we did it all in two days, and and did it for a tequila brand, and um and it was just a lot of fun uh to to be able to see that. But a lot has happened for you, because from the first time that we worked together, and the second time you became a mom, right? I did. So a lot had happened there. So now you're in this sort of like new space, and that was just a, so much fun to see, like you know you with you on set without a baby. And then all of a sudden the next time it was like everything we were doing, there was this like cute little baby in your arms. And of course, everyone on set was just like goo goo and gaga. And it was just cool to see this, like, you know, it's still the same you, but like this, like, you know, mom version, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I was very fortunate in that transition from being childless to to being a mother, to have super supportive clients who, wanted the baby on set. Actually, one of my <laughs> my main fashion or actually beauty clients, um, you know, there were a couple people who had babies at the time and we, we had like three or four babies on these crazy sets. Uh, I mean, those days <laughs> are awesome. gone. It's, it's just so weird. <laughs> um, 
I was just having a phone call actually discussing not going to New York for a shoot and figuring out how I can help them remotely because of COVID. So we live in such strange times. But, you know, I flew to very unexpectedly had to rush, get a passport for my son and fly to London for a four day shoot that was like 20 hours long. Um, each day, my husband stationed nearby, bringing the baby over for breastfeeding all through the day and the night. So, you know, I've been fortunate that it was a very easy transition and I had really incredible clients that allowed me to um, continue to work and mother at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's so important, you know, and then that we are in a space now, you know, I think years and years ago, um, you know, maybe those, those situations were different, but I certainly love it. I, I think it's great to see people for who they are. And, um, you know, I think that's a lot of our conversation today is just talking about, you know, authenticity and, you know, um, you know, as we jump into this book, you know, one thing that, that you did for me that I thought was just, I really appreciated as a producer is you really had a commitment to your craft, you know, and as we look at the book and we look at deluxe and we look at fashion, you know, these stories of these brands like, you know, Gucci and Louis Vuitton, you know, whoever it is we're talking about, most of them started in like these small towns and these like craftsmen and they built this sort of this sort of quality over time. And I've noticed that, you know, in advertising that you can really tell a difference with people who are committed to their craft, whether it's a copywriter or a designer, in your case, a producer. And when I walked on set, it was like everything from the craft service to the stylist you selected in hair and makeup, like everyone had great attitudes and you could tell that you appreciated building a team that was committed to their craft. So talk to me a little bit about the importance of craft in your career um, and then and then transition that into this brand you've built around craft, stories and objects. It's a very loaded, multidimensional question, Brandon. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, to me, it's it's never mattered if the budget on a project was $500 or $500,000. I'm going to put as much effort into making it as good as it can be within the parameters that we're dealing with as possible. Um, I've been criticized in the past for not actually knowing how to, to, to ascertain the difference between how much effort you should put into something. To me, all <laughs> things are equal. I I take pride in that. I also take pride in running positive sets and positive atmosphere. I can't tell you how many times yeah. people have told me how refreshing it is to not be on set with anybody who, um, you know, especially in the fashion industry, you know, it's got kind of a reputation and you can come across people who can be quite nasty to each other. And I just don't roll that way. I don't even see the need for it. I think, you know, cooperation best comes out of like literally like helping each other out and like realizing we're all in this creative process together. And not only that, like how fortunate we are to be able to work in a creative field. Um, there are so many places in the world and so many people that would love to have the access and, and work in, in a part of an industry that is purely inspirational <laughs> versus like the toiling labor that most people in the world have to do. So, you know, that 
That is very important to me in all endeavors. And then really how yeah. it all kind of translated to, to stories and objects. I mean, we left off kind of Vogue, but I spent several other years working in media at Pop Sugar and then went in-house at um, Sephora and Violet Gray, producing content, working on partnerships, whatever. So I continued to have this relationship at every job, both with kind of an editorial point of view platform, as well as a brand marketing advertising point of view and kind of straddling both lanes. Like what is the, what is the ethos? What is the, um, you know, what's important to communicating to an audience through this editorial platform, whether it's a retailer like Sephora or a magazine like Pop Sugar or Vogue, with a brand that wants to associate with their audience and their voice. So I think, you know, for, for me, that was really helpful because I could put on those two hats. I could, you know, think about what John Frieda needed versus Lunazole tequila and try to, you know, yeah. always do the best to do something unique for each of them. But, but always keep in mind, like, what we're trying to give to the consumer and what that point of view is. For stories and objects, yeah. um, you know, that really was more born out of what we'll talk about in regards to the book, but also my experience in the fashion industry. When I was reporting um, in, the, in the video part on a lot of fashion shows and, and interviewing a lot of designers, I just remember so many of them talking about being inspired by a vacation or a certain culture um, and incorporating that into what they were sending down the runway and, and whatnot. And I, although I loved that, it just became like such an expected answer every single time. Like, oh, I was in Morocco and I saw this and yada, yada. Um, and I thought like, God, we're borrowing from all these incredible cultures um, none of these people, especially at that time, obviously things have changed, but none of these people are really getting credit, not only for inspiring designers, but also like that original craftsmanship um, that they are responsible for, that their culture is responsible for. So my goal was really to highlight that, to tell stories of people and cultures and bring those cultures to life through the objects that they created. And to give those voices yeah. a platform, quite frankly, in their own language. So I felt painstakingly film everything in their own language and have it all translated and subtitled. But to me, it's preserving culture. It's preserving language. And it's giving credit to the people who we often are borrowing from and commoditizing their culture. Yeah. And for those listening, Stories and Objects is, it's kind of hard to describe. It's part travel log journey. It's this fo beautiful photography. There's these artisan um, goods and services that, that Jamie's bringing to the forefront. You can, you can purchase. So it's like, it's a, it's a interesting experience. I don't, I think I described it halfway decent. How do you describe what it is? Because it's not just a brand. It's like this, it's a journey. Yeah. I mean, the, the goal for me really, first and foremost, is to tell the story. As I mentioned, we do about five to 10 minute long videos interviewing the people where in the towns they're from um, and then showing kind of their work process 
and what they're engaged in and what, you know, they're doing on a daily basis to continue these traditions that in some cases are thousands of years old and that passion for it that comes through the community. And then there is a commerce portion of that, which truly is meant to, well, it provides an incentive to the, 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 the artisan for allowing me to come into their lives and spend a couple of days with them. It's a revenue source for them. And it's a way for me to tangibly kind of give people a little bit of a virtual journey with a souvenir at the end of it, if they want to take action on it. Yeah, it's really cool. And I know you take those trips, uh, you know, at least several times a year. I know you're, you're, you're planning those. Do you have any, uh, any, well, right now you're probably like a little stir crazy cause you can't travel. I know you travel quite a bit. Um, but I think there's so many journeys right now that you have on the site. So, you know, if you are feeling cooped up and you want to take a little trip to an exotic place, uh, visit stories and objects and, uh, we'll put the links in the, in the podcast show notes here and you can just sort of discover these beautiful places and people that, um, Jamie's been able to tell the stories of, you know, it reminds me in the book, um, Louis Vuitton had a quote, uh, in the book that says, luxury is not consumerism. It is educating the eyes to see the special quality. And I feel like stories and objects does that. It, it, It helps educate us to see some certain things. My, my question to you is, what do you say to those in advertising and marketing after, you know, hearing some of your experience, um, you know, on, on this point of commitment to craft? What do you say to them as they think about their brands or their work after seeing these artisans in, in exotic places? What's the thing that you take away and go, you know what, here's, here's my thought on commitment to craft. Yeah, I think it goes back to authenticity. Like what makes your brand, the brand that you're promoting most authentic in itself? And it doesn't have to be like that, you know, provenance, you know, kind of story that I think at a certain point now is being told quite a bit, um, you know, where it's, it's always relating back to this maker, um, story from about, you know, from hundreds of years ago or whatnot. But sometimes the brand is so far removed from where it started that doesn't even make sense to try to make a campaign about it. It's like, what does, what makes it most authentic in the moment? And why do people need it? I think we're living in a time where, and that's hard for advertising. I get it. It's, it's been really hard, I think, for the fashion industry in the last year, too. I'm very fortunate that I transitioned to beauty and wellness because it's very much needed right now where we're at in society. But I think a lot of people are asking themselves and of the brands, like, why do I really need this? What what is this really going to do for me? And I think it's just really figuring out authenticity in the moment, whether or not that's hearkening on the past and trying to get back to a relationship and a connection with it or figuring out how you can be authentic today. Yeah. You know, and that really brings up another theme in the book. The next big idea I want to jump to is this idea of what you value determines what is valuable. You know, what I mean by that is, you know, the book talks about the luxury industry has changed the way people dress. It's reimagined our economy and class system it's changed the way we interact. It's become part of our social fabric. But 
also to achieve this, it sacrificed some integrity, undermined its products, tarnished its history, and potentially hoodwinked its customers. You know, you talked about some of this, you know, just slapping of brands on everything. And some of these, you know, legacy brands started to just see dollar signs and they would slap their logo on just about anything. Um, so I guess talk to a little bit about that and your experience of, you know, you know, if you start to value the dollar signs or other things other than craft along the way, you know, there's some there's some consequences with that. You know, and I think we've seen the fashion industry has had a period where it's gone into some dark places around some of those things. How did that section of the book speak to you? Well, I think that, you know, overall, it, as I mentioned earlier from, from my studies, there has always been a connection between using dress um, as an expression of culture and individuality. So even before there was anything that was really deemed or termed the luxury industry, um, you had different times throughout history that, you know, what type of objects, I mean, throughout all of our history, quite frankly, in terms of what you see in museums, objects and cloth and, and colors are different things that really symbolized status. Um, mm -hmm. All the way back to the Roman ages, depending on what style of toga someone wore, or what type of sachet, uh, you know, sashes that might go across it, or uh, specific colors. There are so many examples of that throughout the ages. I think what has happened more recently, which is a bit conflicting because, you know, look, I'm not an elitist. I don't come from an elite background. I, you know, I always like to let people know that I'm the daughter of a truck driver and a travel agent who found my way by working really hard to get to Vogue. I, I was not a socialite and, and, and didn't get that through family connections. So I'm not saying at all that like luxury should remain like this snobbish type of elitist, um, you know, for, for only a few type of attitude and commodity. But I think what has happened is that the consumer doesn't really care if something is truly authentic and real and actually a luxury item or something that looks like it. And mm. that's enough for them. And I, and I had mentioned yeah. to you earlier, kind of the example, like when I was, you know, back in college, we had a trip to Florence, Italy, and we had a, we had a trip to the Gucci factory. And the, the, the night before, when all of the students, we all arrived in Florence, because we were on student budgets, you know, we saw those counterfeiters in the street in Florence of all places where all these goods are being made. And we all went and bought counterfeit Gucci bags or whatever. <laughs> and then I, I didn't do it, but I saw other students carrying their counterfeit Gucci bags into the Gucci factory. And wow. I thought, oh, my God, this is so disrespectful. I mean, and that, I mean, <laughs> I was only 20 at the time, and I thought, okay, I would rather work to save up the money to buy something authentic and real that was a point of view from a designer and and grown out of the craftsmanship versus someone who replicated it at a cheaper price to try to look similar yeah. and then carry that around to try to signify that I belong in some certain part of society. 
And I think that to me is the problem. I think luxury is something worth saving up for and to be proud of. You're going to take so much better care of an item that you had to save multiple paychecks for than something that mimicked it to make you feel like you fit in and that just becomes disposable and doesn't really make you feel good about yourself or your place in that system. You just end up wanting more and more. And I think that has become the issue that we have been faced with in the last 20 or so years in terms of people wanting to just emulate a way of life to, I don't know, make them feel better self-esteem-wise, make them feel like they fit in more versus actually looking at what these things are for, again, the craftsmanship, why they cost that much you know, a living wage, whether that is an, an artisan in France yeah. or an artisan working in the Colombian jungles. Um, but really having appreciation for that object and having a relationship with it beyond just consumerism. Yeah. You know, in the book, there was a quote from Coco Chanel that said, uh, being copied is the ransom of success, you know? And I thought, man, that's really interesting, especially in that section about counterfeiting you know, and you just sort of told that story. And it got me thinking, you know, about that, 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 that idea of, you know, when you do great work, you know, and as we think about advertising and, and creative, you know, whether it's design, copy, or, you know, installations, videos, whatever it might be, you know, we see that in advertising as well. There is a copy culture, you know, when, when, when somebody makes a great commercial, you know, you start to see the copycats that come across that. So, you know, as a, as a creative yourself and a producer who, who kind of brings these things to life, how much does that play in? Do you see a lot of uh, people that come to you or say, we want it to kind of, we want it to look like this. We want it to feel like that. How much of that copy culture translates into your experience from the advertising side? Yeah, well, just going back to Coco Chanel for a second, it's very interesting because obviously she was someone who really brought um, fashion to women that was um, in some ways uh, derivative of male-influenced fashion. She was one of the first people to get women to be able to wear pants in a chic way that felt feminine. And a lot of, and she's one of the first people who actually. Uh, created costume jewelry. So jewelry that looked expensive and looked like gemstones, but didn't necessarily cost as much and looked very stylish. So in some way, yeah, she she copied, but also uh, came up with her own style and also kind of did democratize fashion in a way for other women to be able to attain that and to look really stylish. I mean, to the to the point today. Um, but yeah, I think I think what has happened and why there's so much copying now is time. I, what I have seen, um, you know, and I come into the process now even more so as a freelance producer, at the end of the creative process, I get handed like, this is the direction that we need to bring to life. Uh, help us put it together. And the timelines for that, when I talk to creative directors that are in-house <laughs> or tomorrow, myself. Tomorrow, we need it tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> there used to be this respect for time, for creativity, for original thinking that we just don't even have anymore. 
the the timeline of like a, a marketing objective or a new collection being briefed and to when you need to shoot the assets and the campaign and all this stuff has really, I think, shrunk to a quarter of what used to be um, invested yeah. in that process. And you're seeing that throughout all industries. And it's more and more. The digital space has, it's like, it used to just be like, okay, we need two ideas a year, right? And now it's like, oh, with digital, we need a new idea every week. But we have the same budgets. We have the same budgets. So, you know, before we needed, I don't know, five images, but now we need 500 images. Yeah, a library of content. Yeah, and I think that's why people aren't original. I I I think that's why it's really hard to be original. And you will look, whether it's a, you know, a, a musician or um, a screenwriter or, you know, someone in the advertising industry, the ones who come up with the best ideas are the ones who still have the luxury of time to invest in it. Oh, wow. That's, that's a great, yeah, that was a great thought there. That's, I, I, yeah, I mean, to be able to just have some space and let your mind wander and think and reflect and, you know, have to face the the truth, you know, the the truth of of who you are and and who you thought you might be, and you know what you're trying to achieve, and you know all those sort of things really start to create tension. And I think you know good art and original creative, you know, I think can be a result of of tension in release. And so that's just a great insight. Um, you know, as I think about this conversation we're having, you know, it really points me to you know, a third idea that I sort of extracted from the book, you know, and, and it's really that luxury, you know, it feels a lot more like a state of mind than it does, uh, like a dollar figure. And, you know, um, what's really interesting is, is there was a quote from, um, Carl Lagerford that said, you know, we live in a time when expensive and inexpensive, not cheap. I hate that word, uh, can live very well together. Um, it's the first time fat in fashion that this has happened. And, and he was talking in the interview about this, this space now where, you know, you have people, you know, movie stars and, and whoever else that are simultaneously wearing H and M as well as, you know, Chanel, you know, and, and it's this, now there's collaborations where H and M is collaborating with, you know, with fashion designers targeted a collaboration with Isaac Mizrahi. So, um, so this interesting space where things have been, you know, made accessible, which is not too different than the creative space, right? Where now, you know, cameras are really cheap. Software is really cheap. Anybody can get into the game of creativity. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting from the book. So I just wanted to, to see your thoughts on that, this idea of, and you started to hint at it a little bit before with, with the budgeting, but like, you know, you kind of can create something awesome with a small budget these days if you have the right team. So talk a little bit about how important it is to, you know, I guess the state of mind of creating something of of luxury or something really well done versus having to have just massive budgets. Yeah, I, I think we have all been forced to learn how to do more with less, which is a good thing. And that does help with uh, innovation to a certain extent. I think in terms of, you know, how it's being described in this book um, and also 
just as a general point at large, it's really not necessarily something whether something's expensive or inexpensive. It's the ethics behind it now, right? So, you know, to your point, I mean, talking about, and I don't have any of the insider knowledge on any of these collections and how they're done with H&M or Target, but imagine if, for example, I always think of Missoni um, when they did the, I think it was with Target collection and it sold out in a day. But you have something that is, you know, made in a special way for however long of the history of the the company with craftsmen that are getting paid a, a kind of an elite daily wage. You know, I, I don't know, $20, $30 an hour, whatever it might be. I don't have those statistics. But you have this look coming out of something where people are being well-paid. They live a very good quality of life. I've been in some of those factories um, and ateliers in Italy where you've got an incredible on-site cafeteria and everyone takes a two-hour break in the middle of the day and can go home and eat with their family or go to the seaside, take a siesta. Um, some of them even have schools there for children, not because they're trying to keep everyone contained, but just to make sure they're giving like that level of education. And, you know, I've seen that side of the experience. And then you see them do these cheaper or more inexpensive collections with a Target or a um, H&M or whatnot at a very, very low price point. In some cases, looking very similar, although that the fabrics wouldn't be nearly as nice. But you know that they're products coming out of countries where people might be making one or two dollars a day. Um, And they might, you know, in some cases, in the worst cases, we uncover that it's forced child labor or we uncover that they're living in dormitories with multiple people to a room and really have no quality of life. And that's that's the difference between going, okay, I'm going to wear something that is a derivative of something luxurious in the $20 range versus paying $200 or, you know, I know just today's prices are insane, but $2,000 for something. But that is the difference. And obviously, these people in, you know, countries in, in Southeast Asia where a lot of this is happening they deserve to make a good living. They deserve to have good jobs. But we have to look at that disparity when we're trying to emulate something, when we're trying to, again, show an association with something purely because of aesthetically how that is looking and the signal it's sending to people versus truly investing in the value of it with the ethical question of today where we're at. No, those are, those, and those are hard conversations to have, right? Because, you know, we, you know, we see some of these things that are exciting collections at, at a place like Target that's accessible. And, you know, for especially those of us in the Midwest, it's a slice of, you know, fashion and culture that we can't really get anywhere else. And so it, it, those things are exciting, but, you know, to have to face the music and think about, okay, where, where's this stuff sourced? You know, how's it happening? I think those are really hard, hard conversations and it becomes, you know, um, something that we have to, you know, make choices on. So I think that's, you know, I think you bring up some really interesting points there. Um, you know, one of the things in, um, as I can, you know, on this idea that, that I found interesting was, um, something from Louboutin 
who mentioned <clears throat> growing up watching his his father, who was a woodmaker or a craftsman, um, and just hearing him talk was really cool because I, I I didn't expect him to be as um, I don't know, just sort of accessible. And he and and there was this sort of quote that says, um, "If you can sculpt in the vein, it's beautiful. If you go against the grain, it breaks." Same goes with business. If you go with the flow, it grows naturally. But if you try to grow your company in an unnatural way, it breaks. I did not do a company to make money. I made shoes and it became a company. And I was like, wow, that's just such an interesting thought. And when you think about some of these big fashion brands who made a shift from craft to sort of, um, you know, profits, I think, you know, it moved into those spaces. When you talk about breaking, you know, there's there's more and more of those stories that you talked about with um, with the the work conditions and the counterfeit culture, which is is pretty dark once you look at how some of that world works. Um, but in general, you know, I really love that sentiment of you know, do what you love, really invest in something of beauty, and you know, it, it will sort of it will sort of show its way. And, you know, I share that because, you know, in your story and what I love about you is you've, you've continued to sort of grow and spread your wings into new areas or whatnot. But for you, you know, as a transition um, from where you've been in advertising in the beauty space, you mentioned it earlier about moving into wellness. And so you have sort of fallen in love with, with this new sort of expression that's made its way into um, a company that you founded called Nature of Things that's all about wellness. Um, so I want to make sure that we talk about that because I think it's really important and I think what you're doing is super creative. And I think it really um, has a nice extension of this whole conversation we've been talking about with you know, luxury and commitment to craft. And I see some of these things starting to culminate into this brand that you're building. So tell me a little bit about how you got there and just a, a little bit about, you know, again, these influences we've talked about as they're now being expressed in this, in this wellness brand. Yeah, just to, just to touch on that quote from Christian Louboutin, um, you know, I think a lot of the brands that have this incredible history um, that we respect and covet and want to buy into today come from that place. You know, Louis Vuitton, Vuitton was a, um, you know, a trunk maker for royalty um, to start. You know, there is still an atelier in the hometown uh, that he grew up in where people can commission special, unique goods in that same kind of way while you have mm-hmm. Louis Vuitton stores all over the world and, and um, people buying it online and hopefully not buying counterfeits anymore, but, you know, where that's more accessible now. There still is this section of the business that really taps into that root, which I think is very important. You know, we live in a very difficult time for brands to grow at an organic pace. Um, The game you're talking of you're talking about you know a lot of brands that started when when money was still based on the gold rate when there was a tangible connection between the value of something real whereas now so much of value it comes from the stock market and it is all kind of digital or even bitcoin to a certain point it's all a little bit 
based on speculation versus reality. And so when you're building a business and you're trying to be organic about it, it's very difficult because in order to really have the appropriate amount of money to build a business in this day and age um, and to do all of the marketing levers and everything you need to do to really get it out there in a big way, you need capital. And that usually comes from investors who really only care about a five-year exit plan. No one is setting out to really start brands to say, hey, what's this brand going to look like in 60 to 100 years from now? But yet we continue to look at brands and point to the best brands being the ones that were built 200 years ago. <laughs> you yeah. know? So it's, it's, it's difficult in this day and age to, to really authentically build a brand that um, can can take that organic brand building uh, route and not have this need, this demand from stockholders, shareholders, um, board of directors to just want to focus on the bottom line. Um, So it's a difficult dance. And, you know, how that relates to nature of things, about a year and a half ago, I met with my business partner for the first time, and we had been put in touch, mainly, I think, for the same reasons that you and I have been put in touch. We were, I think, eventually, he was starting this brand, and eventually he would need kind of a creative partner to bring some assets to life. And we met right when he got investment and had not gone about creating the brand. They hadn't even developed their first product. But what I can say is that the brand was growing out of a space that was related to the cannabis industry. And the investors wanted to invest in a CBD brand, beauty brand. And mm-hmm. they did a lot of research, didn't really find anyone on the market that was developing anything that they felt was right for their investment. And my business partner, JP, was involved in that search and that vetting, and they decided to invest in him and said, why don't you start a company? So we met, JP was starting a CBD beauty and wellness brand. It was unnamed. Again, there wasn't really any product direction yet. But at that time, a lot of which grew out of my travels for stories and objects where I had gone and harvested roses in Turkey and we did a story. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to Iran um, last minute, but we did a story in Iran also harvesting roses. We, we, We harvested argan oil and various different things in the beauty industry. So I was getting closer and closer with this sort of plant medicine connection. And when he was trying to describe for me what they were looking to do, I went away over the weekend and said, you know, again, going back to this entire conversation, seeing something that is like trying to capitalize on a trend or a gold rush for the sake of that alone doesn't feel right. But I think there is something here because we know that CBD and cannabis has been plant medicine used for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. Cannabis as a plant is mentioned in some of the oldest medicinal texts 
that exists today. Um, that's the Hindu Atharva Vedas, thousands of years old, which include that as one of, I believe, five sacred medicinal plants. So there's a long history here. There is, you know, there's value in this ingredient. But just to build a brand around that and build yet another CBD brand in the space does nothing yeah. for respecting that ingredient and does nothing for the normalization of it. So I went back to them and said, hey, here's what I've come up with. I have <laughs> recently come across this poem that is called Deriram Natura that was written around 50 BC by a Roman poet named Lucretius. And Luc Lucretius was trying to describe for the Roman public what the philosophy of Epicureanism was actually about. And he was arguing that it wasn't about hedonism, but rather about how to find true pleasure, to derive true pleasure out of your life. And he was saying the only way to derive true pleasure out of your life was by eliminating two things, fear and pain. Mm. And what we saw from the research in terms of how people are using ingredients like CBD, along with others, was that they were using it to treat inflammation and pain, and they were using it to treat stress and anxiety. Yeah. So I said, you know, okay, yes, let's do something that really gives justice to what this ingredient, this wellness ingredient can do, but let's also combine that ingredient with a host of other very beneficial botanicals, minerals, elements that also have been known throughout history to amplify that effect so that we are building true wellness, true natural wellness for people that go to target just those things. And so you guys offer, and you guys offer all sorts of, I mean, there's like body bombs, body stones, face stones, there's bath immersions, uh, floral bath, there's um, digestibles, um, all sorts of things. And it's really starting to shape into this brand. And, and I have to say, like, I, I can just, you know, everything in our conversation, you can see in this brand, you know? And so it's, it's very much, it feels rooted. It feels like it's coming from a space that uh, has meaning. It, it feels luxurious in, in, in the most positive ways that we've talked about today. And um, it's just really exciting. So like, how new is this? And, and what are, you know, what are you guys learning or what's the next step for this brand? And, and um, you know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we, we came to market just over a year ago. So we basically had three true months in the market pre-COVID, um, which has been very interesting experience. But again, as I said, you know, we've been so fortunate to be in the wellness space because people who have been able to discover the products to help them relax, help them treat specific, um, you know, stress uh, points or pain that they're experiencing currently has been really great because it's kind of like that's the stuff that people are really, really looking at as necessity for for the for the times. Um, you know, again, we have I had to be very thoughtful. I had a lot of experience creating content for a lot of different brands, from Sephora to Violet Gray. You know, ten dollar products to. $500 products. I've seen the market. I knew it was out there. I knew how people marketed it. What I 
often didn't know is really, again, going back to that essence, that journey, like what is, what is it about sourcing of the ingredients? What makes that authentic? How can we connect that back? So for us, you know, we use organic whenever we can. We make sure things are ethically sourced. We work, we use things that work, that are high quality um, and are going to actually have a real efficacious um, impact on your well-being. We started with three categories, um, bath immersions, because we know that this type of you know, botanical and uh, mineral delivery system is best absorbed through the larger surface of skin. Um, if people are just rubbing really truly like any botanical, but certainly CBD because of the CBD molecule, how large it is, um, on their hand in a hand lotion and then possibly washing their hands 10, 15, 20 minutes later, you're not getting the benefits of that product. You need it to really be able to absorb through your skin over a long duration of time. So bath immersions were very important to us as an anchor of the brand, layered with topical skin treatments that we worked very hard to make sure that they do penetrate through the um, through the skin and in, in, in are in products that aren't, again, going to be washed away. You would never put CBD in a soap or a cleanser you're just going to wash it off of your body and you're not, you're paying a lot of money for a buzzword and not something that's actually going to do anything for you. And then in terms of the ingestibles, obviously taking um, turmeric, boswellia, all of these incredible plant medicinals, including CBD, ingesting it is also highly effective and one of the best ways to receive the benefits. So it was this loop between internal and external support and best delivery and absorption options for the products to truly work. And again, that just goes back to yeah. trying to be like providing people with things that really work, not just jumping on a trend, using the word CBD. We don't use it on our packaging, our branding, our logo, anything. It's not a CBD brand. It's a plant-based wellness brand. And you know, making sure that we're using them in the ways that are actually going to work for, with all of the examples I just gave in terms of I, I've seen products on the market yeah. that have CBD or whatever, or even vitamin body washes. And I'm like, if you're putting that on, I mean, I don't know how long you keep a body cleanser on your body, but I probably for maybe 30 seconds, there's no way vitamins are going through <laughs> my skin, you know? So being well, you like know, real, you, you know, I, I'm like most, I'm like a lot of guys. I, I, I got. I go with the with the classic bar soap. Give me a give me a bar of soap. You know. <laughs> well, well. Hopefully, you're, you're not long. using any with any chemicals and toxins that are not good for your body, Brandon. <laughs> no, I, I try to choose. I, so my daughter is very uh, very skin conscious, so she tries to lead me in the in the right directions. But you know, I think this is just so cool to see that you get to be a part of building your own brand. You know, this whole conversation today and just knowing you the short time that I've known you, you know, to see all of this culminate where you've watched other people in the beauty space and in in fashion and you've been on this journey and then here you are and like you're a part of it. Like now, so I guess my final question to you is how do you take your own advice? <laughs> so of all the stuff you've learned along the way, as you think through where this goes moving forward, as you're building this brand, you know, what are the things, is there one thing that you're like, you know what, as I build this brand, I I have to hold, hold up this one ideal that I've learned across my 
my experience, you know, because again, you're you're now the you're now the brand that's under critique, right, by yourself. So, so what's the thing that um, that you say to yourself, and in and in turn, those listening, um, is the most important thing. I honestly think it's authenticity because you're putting a message out there that you need to live up to every single day, and you know we've talked to investors or people in the space that were just, you know, they, they just said, oh, you know, why are you investing so much in packaging? Uh, you know, if you did this just in a plastic bottle and, and formulated things that people could mindlessly dump, pump or dump down the drain in their experience and just buy more of, you would make so much more money. And I just found that idea appalling. <laughs> First of all, we know that plastic is destroying the planet and it's also absorbing into our skin and animals. And there's, there's, there's a lot of research out there on that. We're not going to compromise on that. And I'm not going to be involved in a brand that's going to create products that people mindlessly pump and dump down the drain and buy more of that aren't actually going to work. And for me in this project, more than people saying how beautiful the packaging is or how beautiful the photography that I've done is um, the, the thing that I know that makes it work. And the thing that makes me most proud is when I get emails from people saying how it has helped them sleep better at night um, or it has helped them manage chronic conditions that even medication from doctors have not been able to, to me, that is what we're here to do. And that is what makes it work. And, you know, very much to the Christian Louboutin example, like we built a wellness brand that works. And if it becomes a business, we're, you know, because obviously we're still in the first year and we're very happy where we're at, but we're still building it. But like if that is, if it's working for people and it becomes a legitimate business because it works for people, it's more important for me to go that route versus, um, you know, a buzzy trend that and applications of, of certain type of ingredients that just are not effective uh, in helping people. Yeah, man, that's, that's so good. What a, what a great last thought there. And, and again, you know, you guys are going to, you're going to be awesome because you are just, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and, and I always love working with you. And I think people are going to see the authenticity in the brand. I think it's really cool what you're, what you guys are doing. So, you know, just so people know, I just want to make sure. So to check this out, they go to natureofthings.com. Is that correct? And can, can you purchase everything on site? Can you purchase everything there? Or is some of that going to be regulated by state? Cause I know the, like with the cannabinoid stuff, I don't know what is all your stuff legal currently or talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we um, we only use broad spectrum hemp extract. There's no THC in that formulation. So we can deliver to all states. We deliver to Canada. We have uh, accounts in Europe and also Hong Kong as well. Um, so there is awesome. no issue with that at all. It's natureofthings.com. You can buy everything in the collection there and um awesome. there are select retail partners excellent and then as far as for those that want to go on the journey um stories and objects.com 
you can go there and um, you know there's a the way the menu's broken down in your your navigation. It's the stories, the objects, and the travel notes, and it's just I, I got to let everybody know this is it's just a fun place to go. Like just go immerse yourself in some of these stories. I mean, there's um there's all sorts of really cool stuff here from you know uh, Colombia to Indonesia, and it's just beautiful photography, beautiful video. Um, I want to encourage everybody to go check that out. So I know you're always up to something. Is there is there anything else you're doing? Is there any other side hustle? This is sort of the the point in the podcast where we where we plug all the things you're doing. Obviously, we've covered a lot of those because they're a part of your story. But anything else that uh, people should know about about Jamie? No, I mean that you know. I'm still working uh, freelance producing because, you know, <laughs> we're putting so much of sweat equity into these projects. But um, yeah, I know these are these are definitely, you know, stories and objects is taking a little bit of a backseat right now for multiple reasons. Um, COVID being one of them, not being able to travel, um, but mm. also because uh, being a, a fairly new mom as well, I started to plan a bunch of projects in Egypt and India. And I thought, is this really feasible with a year, uh, one year old? <laughs> and then COVID <laughs> happened. So, so that kind of yeah. took care of that on that own. So I'm, I'm really focusing on nature of things. We've got some great new products coming out. Um, five new products releasing out over the next few months, um, that cool. are really incredible for both men and women. Um, you know, we like to say that our collection is universal. It's, it doesn't matter what your skin color yeah. is or your gender. Um, it's it's made for everyone. Um, and so that's, that's really awesome. it. You know, I, I want to really streamline my focus because I think that also helps me become most authentic as well, you know, and myself to really be able to yeah. hone in on the skills and the needs of those particular businesses. So that's what I'm focusing on. That is awesome. So now you are obviously my go-to LA producer and I would be so happy to share that with everybody else. And I know there's definitely advertisers listening to this show. So if indeed somebody does want to connect you with you from that realm of production and sort of bringing their brand stories to life, how do they get a hold of you? Or do you have a separate site for that part of the business? Or what's the best way for people to contact you? Um, that's through Stories and Objects. It's just Jamie at storiesandobjects.com. Okay. Stories and Objects is both the media platform and the production company. Okay, great. Beautiful. So you heard it right there, everybody listening. If you want to work with Jamie, if you have a, a production, if you have something happening uh, in the world or out in LA, um, you know, connect with Stories and Objects, connect with Jamie. She is a wealth of knowledge from uh, from um, herbal blends and skincare to big budget shoots to run and gun, uh, you name it, she can do it. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. It's been so good. It's been so good to just hang out and like hear your voice. And it just reminds me of our our journeys together in the desert. Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. It's so nice to hear your voice <laughs> and those amazing Midwestern values coming through. I've always enjoyed <laughs> every moment of time, either on the phone or in person with you. And I hope we get to reconnect uh, again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, really excited that you were able to join us. For everyone listening, as always, we'd love it for you to go to iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, give us a rating and review. I love a five-star rating, but as Jamie has mentioned, I would rather have authentic. So if you authentically think it's a one, at least let us know why. We'll try to uh, improve upon that. 
And uh, as always, man, it's uh, it's been great. So we'll see you guys next time. Later. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, head over to iTunes or Spotify and give us a great rating and review. A Quick Read is a Leap Group podcast.